Welcome back to Playopolis, a podcast about the places people play. Thanks for joining us. My name's Troy Innocent, and I'm again recording this from Melbourne, Australia, in April 2021, where we are spending most of the first half of this year picking up the pieces of last year. Melbourne is coming back to life. We've recently been out and about at Melbourne Design Week, exploring ways in which we can design the world we want. Playable City Melbourne held a conversation during Design Week about ways to reactivate the world through urban play. Now we are heading into another great Melbourne week as Melbourne Knowledge Week begins on the 27th of April, running through to the 2nd of May. It's packed with conversations and activations that explore another city for another life, speculating and building on alternative futures. Knowledge Week is hybrid in person and online, so jump onto their website to check out their program to learn or do something new. It's fitting that we're starting off this second season of Playopolis by catching up with interviews and stories made during the quieter moments of Melbourne's 2020 lockdowns. In this episode, I'm sharing a conversation with Mackenzie Walk that starts with a contemporary reading of the Situationist International moves through her views of cities now, including her experiences in New York during the pandemic, and leads to speculation on seeds for other ways of life that may rise from modern ruin. A story on the rise and fall of Jaffle Shoots features in the second part of this episode. We talk to the co-founders of this world-first float-down pop-up eatery about what works and what really doesn't in the world of parachutable food. But first, let's talk with writer and scholar Mackenzie Walk. She is known for her writings on media theory, critical theory, new media, and the Situationist International, and is professor of media and cultural studies at the New School in New York City. Hello, Mackenzie. Thanks for joining us on Playopolis. So the Situationist International was a collective of social activists formed after the Second World War active from 1957 to 1972, led by Guy Debord, working with the construction of situations in lived experience that challenge the dominant codes of capitalism, particularly in cities. You've described the situationist game as ongoing pervasive play with the world, with the ultimate goal to build new cities that counter the modern city. Do you think that the situationist field kit has a role to play in cities now? Yes and no. I think they would describe themselves as uh, firstly aesthetic and and then political revolutionaries rather than activists. And there might Mm. be a way that uh, it was a project that happened at a certain moment in the evolution of cities, like the coming of post-war urban planning, particularly in Europe where a lot of cities were bombed. And so, you know, there was sort of like, what do you put in the holes kind of thing. So there of a certain era in a way. But one thing they were doing was trying to find ways you could experience through the practice of play in urban spaces what they referred to as another city for another life. Mm. What are the moments of um, articulating, you know, the gesture of being in the city that indicate the city you would rather the rest of it was like? And that I think is still valid in all sorts of ways that they would never have anticipated. Yeah, right. So thinking through that, you know, what cities are now, your most recent book, Capital is Dead, 
you know, talks about the need for new language. Um, you, you kind of say that we need to add modifiers such as neoliberal to clarify the meaning of capitalism and that perhaps it's time to move on, uh, on think of something else, literally think of something else. So the 21st century has seen multiple modifiers applied to cities, you know, smart, creative, livable, slow, hackable, playable, and so on. Do you think our cities are also becoming something else? It's a good question, actually. And yeah, Capitalist Data is a book about, you know, maybe this is not even capitalism anymore. It's something worse. And if so, what would be a language mm. that describes that? Where we start with that language rather than trying to apply these old terms to what might be not absolutely new realities, because that's also a mistake, right? To think everything's totally new. The things that are sort of modified in sort of yeah. subtle ways where, you know, like half the, the icons on my phone pretend to be old fashioned things. The phone icon is like an old fashioned phone. New things always pretend to be old things and we don't quite notice what's new about them. So I think that is relevant to thinking about uh, what it is about the city that might have changed and the way cities differentiate a little bit. And I can only speak to cities like the one I'm in, which is New York City, where they really become focused very, very much on being sort of factories for turning sort of human meat into information. There's some kind of weird, you know, sort of game that all of us kind of play that information that's extracted out of. Uh, and that we get distracted out of so that we can, you know, afford to be here and do that. And that is maybe something that cities have partly done in the past, but now, you know, cities like this in the overdeveloped world, it's what they specialize in. I and mean, then everything else is a service industry to sort of prop that up. Hmm. So situating your concepts of the hacker and victorious classes in relation to urbanism, how do these operate within perhaps, you know, produce those cities you were just talking about, uh, particularly in a world where everything is a resource and again, returning to a state of perpetual pervasive play? Yeah. And, and just sort of just gloss the terms a bit, you know, if what if this isn't capitalism anymore, it's, it's something worse. Well, what if it isn't a capitalist ruling class anymore? What I call vectoralist, mm. meaning that you can kind of control the whole value and production chain uh, by controlling the information, partly through owning the patents and the copyrights and the brands, you know, sort of owning the fact that your brand and a feeling about it has been printed in millions of people's heads, living there rent-free, but also owning the logistics, owning the capacity to extract new ideas out of a workforce because, you know, people will kill themselves to work for you. So your archetypal companies like that and your sort of Googles and Apples and all that, but there's a way in which all sorts of companies now have that sort of quality about them as well. Mm. So, you know, I mean, Apple doesn't make phones, right? I mean, they just own the brand and, and generate the ideas and own the intellectual property and somebody else makes the phones, et cetera. So that's vectorless class. And then, well, what is the subordinate class out of whom information is extracted? I, I tried to call it the higher class. Mm. It's a word that... You know, people don't think I just mean computer people, but really, I mean, anybody who makes information, mm. you know, if you make something that's tradable as information, you could be a hacker. But it's a word that got very criminalized, so I don't have to work for anymore. But maybe it is worth saying that, you know, doing digital labor is kind of different to doing analog labor. It's just a different way of working. Mm, mm. Um the situationists were part of May 68, seven weeks of civil unrest in France that called for radical political change. And you once commented that when that ended, the means were lacking to create social relations of a new kind. 
Starting in May 2020 in the United States this year, Black Lives Matter protests have continued for several weeks throughout the year and expanded to at least nine countries around the world. Do you think we can draw connections between these events? And if so, will the outcome be different this time? Yeah, there, there's different ways of seeing May 68. I mean, one would be that it was a thing that happened once, never to be repeated. Another would be that it's part of a chain of continuous revolt that characterizes the whole of modernity. Uh, and that just sort of springs up in different cities sporadically here and there, as, as it did in the United States from, you know, 66 through to 68, 69 as well, uh, in York and Watts and so on. It's happening mm-hmm. there as well. Mexico City, uh, 1968. So you can sort of trace a continual chain of revolts within urban space, although they probably presuppose that urban space has some kind of coherence to it. And I don't know if today megalopolises really kind of have that quality anymore. There's, there's a way in which New York City is now an old-fashioned city that's really quite small. You know, if you were to think of the greater sort of conurbation around Tokyo or around uh, Mumbai or around, uh, you know, some of the larger Brazilian cities, are they even things that you can intervene in in the same way, which is you know, the question that you would want to ask. Hmm. Uh, and what's going on there might be more relevant to world history than what happens here now. But certainly the thing that was inspiring about the northern summer of 2020 in the United States was not just sort of like uh, the protest in the street side or the autonomous zone side, but the uh, rise of mutual aid of people realising that uh, neither state nor capital is going to look after us. So to make the space of the city work for us, we have to actually work and figure out how to organise ourselves. Like, why is our company involved in, you know, running the algorithms that put kids in cages? You know, why the fuck do we do that? Mm. I kind of understand the pleasure people get out of certain kinds of technical work, but, you know, that's really not what you do it for. I mean, it always just really feels great, even if you just literally walk out onto the street and it's yours with, you know, several hundred of your mm. completely not closest friends who you just met. <laughs> yeah. You know, to have that kind of feeling of hundreds, almost thousands of people just marching over Brooklyn Bridge, 50,000 people mm. showed up mm. for, for Reclaim Pride this year. Uh, 15,000 people showed up for Black Trans Lives. Uh, I just cried, you know. And it's not always in that masculinist vein at all. There can be a quite different affect about it. But it really depends a little bit on how the police react. And they know that. Mm. And, you know, they can let these things happen or not up to a point, yeah. And I I don't want to be critical of people taking space in aggressive ways. I mean, by all means, go and do that, yeah. But it's sort of like maybe a game through which people learn who and what the police are and what they really do. Mm. It's a kind of education in a way, education in what, uh, your body is and what it can do in certain circumstances, uh, what it means to be with others mm. physically, mm. to be put in touch with fear and exhilaration in, in ways that like things like sport don't really do. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, these things don't amount to a whole lot, but they're not nothing. Yeah, definitely. So thinking about the infamous graffiti from May 68, Beneath the Pavement, the Beach, which um, speaks to processes of decoding and moving through these layers of the city. So seeing it not as a singularity, but as a multiplicity and challenging dominant codes to create new ones or just to find others that are perhaps you know, buried under the surface. What strategies are useful in, in doing this work, particularly now if we're living in what you call the spectacle of disintegration? 
like who even knows what tactics are anymore? There's a way in which the thing we're all told is not to take your fucking cell phone, you know, if you're going out for a demonstration, particularly after curfew. Because you're being tracked and, mm. and people were tracked. Yeah. People were found through pictures on Instagram. Someone who allegedly threw a Molotov cocktail was found through a jacket that that person was wearing that came from Etsy that had only sold four of them or whatever. The facts oh. of that are slightly fictionalized, but the, you sort yeah. of get the, the general gist of that. To what extent yeah. in a city of surveillance, actually, can you make the surveillance the thing that's in your favor? So, so whatever you do, well, you're then vulnerable because you're recorded doing it. On the other hand, you can make that known. The coverage of this sort of stuff and what we used to think of as journalism is somewhat sporadic and often quite controlled. And the whole things happen that nobody knew about other than through Twitter and Instagram and, and so forth where you mm, kind of mm. see the kind of doubling of the urban space in the base of spectacle. I called in a book of that name, like the spectacle of disintegration may in, in a way be what we're looking at, yeah? A, a kind of labeling of uh, institutional forms that mm, hold mm. capitalism together, don't really hold it together all that well. A ruling class that relies much more on the sort of authoritarian and fascist populist temptation, you know, because any sort of uh, liberal consensus model doesn't work, like the massive class polarization and the resentments that drives. And a sort of absentee landlord ruling class, which is literally not here. They're all out in the Hamptons. Mm, There's this beautiful mm. spot out on Long Island, a little beach town for multimillionaires. Like they're not in town. It's like the Versailles of 2020. You just sort of wonder how long this can go on. Mm. And, and, and meanwhile, California's on fire. You know? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on. So yeah, how do you how do you tra- kind of traverse all those layers and and figure it out? So your comment that our species being is as a builder of worlds it reminded me of your keynote at Transmedia, where you're talking about work and play that needs to be done within the whole world, the kind of continuation of the situationist game, and you suggested that this game space be the material from which to build another world, literally building a new society or civilization. Coming back to current events in the United States, how do you feel about approaching this challenge now? Yeah, and I, this all goes back to a book I wrote called uh, Gamer Theory, which came out in 2007. Um, it's already a fairly pessimistic book in a lot of ways. One of the sort of principles of the philosophy of games is to do with their boundedness and the arbitrariness of the rules. Games are like a space outside in a way. But I was already imagining in gamer theory that, oh, what if the entire planet had become a kind of game space for a ruling class that treats everything in it as pieces to move around a board? And you can think of sort of GPS as the thing that's keeping all of these game tokens in motion, some of which are us, yeah, like we're kind of being moved around mm. um, to kind of extract points out mm. of as if the whole thing was a game and there's no outside to it. So you'd really have to think of how to play from within, yeah, and give up on the sort of romantic idea that there's an elsewhere. And that's very hard. Mm. We always like the sense that, you know, there could be like some place outside that's special like the utopian tradition you know participates in that you know the the space apart that, that violence is excluded from you know so how do we play sometimes with decoys sometimes a little bit discreetly inside a space that would like a lot of us to sort of be non-player characters in a way to be moved about by you know i'm, I'm calling it vector ruling class that's extracting and mobilizing resources on a planetary scale 
And where the biggest game, of course, is the derivative markets, yeah, which like mm. massively overshadow the equities and commodities markets on which they're based. And they sort of gave up playing in the real world and are now playing in all of these imaginary possible future other ones as well. Yeah, and that's happening all around us all of the time. That kind of speculative um, investment is really intangible and super abstract. So, yeah, I mean, how you, how you kind of comprehend that or, or come to terms with it or understand it in relation to, again, to this kind of old idea of the city as, as being a, a set of buildings on a skyline um, is really challenging. I guess to wrap up, uh, I mean, this is, a, this is a big question, but I do remember it also from this talk where you're kind of saying, well, yeah, we, we really need to, to rebuild a new civilization. Um, but what you're saying is really that it's, it's not a matter of kind of building it and then going to it. It's, it's kind of doing it in an iterative way within what we have to hand to, to work with us all in cities now. Yeah, and it's sort of like repurposing, and this is what the situation is called mm. detournement. Yeah, this this kind of um, treating all of our sort of cultural inheritance, you know, whether big borrowed or stolen from wherever, as a commons. It's something that we all you know kind of get to mm. play with uh, and to kind of reinvent. You sort of have to do it in this sort of way that acknowledges how compromised that is, right? Yeah. Um, that, that you're sort of like just moving the, moving the pieces around. And I'm just thinking of rave in a parking lot that I went to a couple of weeks ago where somebody sets up a sound system and they're, you know, someone was like giving away water. Uh, you just sort of set it up and everybody dances and, you know, with masks and distance and in an open space, hopefully we'll, none of us will get sick. But you're literally taking the space that, that Ikea has you know, set aside for parked cars, for shoppers, and turning it into a, into a space for play. Uh, and, you know, just for a moment, that can sort of sustain you that uh, we could take these bits and pieces and play around with them and live in the ruins. And maybe the, the seeds for other ways of life will be in that, you know, because like each civilization mm -hmm. tends to emerge out of the margins of ones that imploded. So it's that time again, in a way. It's just going to be kind of slow. But then the other really novel constraint, of course, is, you know, the Anthropocene and climate change and so on. Uh, where mm. the conditions under which you do it are going to have to be much more massively adaptable mm. at, um, you know, non-social change that's happening. Yeah, so we have to live in a state of heightened intensity and be patient and hopeful all at once. Yeah, or play now. Like the, the other way to think of it is like, well, it's just play now and whatever is, you know, vital will, will hopefully be something that endures out of that activity. Indeed. Perfect. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add? I, I think that's a lot, Troy. <laughs> it is a lot. That was great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much. brought to you by 64 Ways of Being, a free augmented reality app that helps you to see Melbourne through new eyes. 64 Ways of Being is the result of a collaboration between a team of artists, developers, designers, linguists, and many more from Melbourne's creative community. And each episode, we'll hear from one of them. My name's Duwani Shiba-Baker, and today I'll be talking to creative technologist, Michelle Woolahan about working interactive light in 64 Ways of Being. So firstly, Michelle, could you describe 64 Ways of Being? It's a way to explore and experience Melbourne and it's, it's 
you're doing it through a phone application that that takes you on a journey of kind of different spaces around Melbourne, which will have augmented reality, site-specific installations and kind of interactive elements and different uh, audio um, parts to it. So it's an amalgamation of tech and art and game experience that makes it, um, yeah, quite an interesting project. Have you had the chance to play it yourself? I haven't played it in the kind of real world. I've had, I've seen kind of different demos and things and um, heard a lot of the audio and stuff like that. So I'm very excited to get to play it. Great. And Michelle, could you tell us a bit more about what you bring to the experience? So I came on to assist with the networking of these LED signs that are going to be placed in dispersed locations around Melbourne. And these signs can be interacted with by the person playing the application, the 64 ways of being. And so I was being consulting on how to get a LED sign be able to be controlled by an app. So using different technologies to be able to make that happen configuring the electronics to and the tech to be able to uh, interact directly. Amazing. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the platforms you work with and what opportunities they offer to play with public space? I work with a lot of di- different digital media, but my favourite would be in this realm, would be physical computing. So where you create objects or there's tangible um, environments in which people can interact with or that the objects respond to different things in the environment, whether that's sound or light or people themselves as well. And so the platform that I'm using in 464 Ways of Being and one that I use a lot, it's called Particle. And so it's an internet-based microcontroller. What people are probably more familiar with it be Arduino. So it's an extension of Arduino. So it allows you to create electronic circuits and have interactive inputs to be able to control those circuits, whether they're lights or motors or sound or, you know, whatever you can kind of come up with, really. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Have you had much of an opportunity to watch people engage with the things that you create and watch their reactions? I tend to work more in... Uh, gallery environments rather than in outdoors but you still get that opportunity to kind of sit and watch people using the devices or interacting with the environment and it's an absolute delight because they find their own way to use them so you may have have a a direct way that you thought this is what I'm going to do but um, people find a new and exciting ways to use them and that's quite beautiful to, to see and part of what I like making interactive works for. Now that sounds really cool and satisfying. Michelle, can you tell us a little bit more about where people can find out about 64 Ways of Being? So there is a 64 Ways of Being website. It's just 64waysofbeing.com. And there's also an Instagram and a, um, I was going to say MySpace. I'm like, whoa, where am I stuck? (laughs) (laughs) I haven't even thought of MySpace in... 10 years. I don't, I'm pretty sure there is no MySpace. There is a Facebook though. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time.
melted cheese falling from the sky. It's the stuff dreams are made of, and that carb-filled dream is about to become true. Do you even know about Jaffel Shoots, guys? Yeah. What? It's a bird, it's a plane, it's grilled cheese. Thanks to some off-the-grid thinkers, you'll no longer have to walk down the street trying to decide what to eat. Coming soon to Manhattan, the crowd-funded company, Jaffel Shoots, has taken the guesswork out of it for you. Well, that's kind of true. But Jaffel Shoots was never intended to be a permanent lunch option for city dwellers. My name's Adam Grant, and in late 2014, some friends and I had a business idea that involved my inner city apartment, some parachutes, and some cheesy sandwiches. The idea was that we would flip Melbourne's late night food business on its head by parachuting late night snacks straight down into the laneway below. We called it Jaffel Shoots. And for a brief moment in time, this not quite company seemed like it might just catch on. I invited my fellow Jaffel shooters, David McDonald and Hugh Parkinson, to talk about their recollections of the rise and fall of Jaffel shoots. It was a sandwich shop, but where we never met our customers in person and we delivered their sandwiches, toasted sandwiches to them, the customers, by throwing them off a building with a parachute attached to it. So as a customer, what you would simply do is go to the website, which would have some vague details about when the next drop is. And uh, closer to that time, you could actually place an order with a selection of the Jaffel flavors that would be on offer that night. And you would nominate a time within a certain window of maybe two hours uh, for when you want your Jaffels to be floated down to you. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, when you arrive at that location in the time that you've requested, you'll see an X on the ground. And so you wait by that X. And then if you look up, you'll see a parachute with some Jaffels coming down. And um, yeah, and it'll have your name on it. And they're yours for the delicious taking. It sounds illegal. It might have been illegal, but if no one actually tells you specifically that something isn't illegal, is it indeed illegal? Well, we... Thankfully, we never found out, but I guess that's probably why we're not still doing it, because there was always a sneaking suspicion in my mind that we were really just littering, potentially, from a very high height, because inevitably the sandwiches would sometimes hit the ground. I mean, they were packaged so that they would still be okay if they did, and most of the time people caught them, but... In a place as litigious as Australia, it felt like we were skirting a very thin line. Our first Jaffel Shoot event on Flinders Lane was honestly a bit of a mess. It happened on the windiest August night in 50 years, which caused some pretty obvious problems. And then one of our parachutes hit a police car. But lots of people turned up, no one was arrested, and we had a lot of fun. The decision to do it again was pretty automatic. We set about making plans to do more events in different locations. But soon we realised we'd created something that wasn't just going to work anywhere. The city landscape presented problems. I, I love trees. I love city trees. I would never advocate for removing them, especially so someone could throw you a toasted sandwich. But it's uh, a simple truth that they have definitely made themselves to the top of the list of Jaffel Shoot's greatest obstacles and awnings. But again, you probably won't find many other cities offering alternative options in that regard. It's surprising just how many awnings and trees there actually are in cities that you don't think about and don't notice when you're not really looking for them. But look around, there's quite a few. The thing that was probably the hardest to do was to find the right apartment to work out of because we needed... 
some very kind people to loan us their apartment or business or restaurant. And it needed to be high enough off the ground that the parachutes would open, but not so high up that the parachutes would fly too far away. It needed to be in a low traffic area because we didn't want them landing on cars or trams or hitting people who didn't know what was going on. And, um, and yeah, but just put all those things together and it's already pretty hard to find someone willing to, to help you out. Because we wanted to keep moving around so we didn't do it in the same location and potentially irritate people. So that was the trickiest bit, probably, I'd say. Difficulties aside, Melbourne's laneways were otherwise pretty perfect. We could pick locations within the hodl grid, within the city grid, um, and know that everyone could get there at relatively short notice. It's not as spread out. Um, in terms of the, the middle of the city as some places are. You don't need a car to get around. You can quickly zip around. And I think that's, um, that's probably uh, one of the reasons that it worked. And also the fact that there's a lot of laneways through Melbourne and they're not sort of tucked away from general day-to-day society that people do use them on the regular, especially on busy nights. That really helped too. I think you get a lot of people walking by and seeing people just standing and cheering and eating cheesy sandwiches and getting a bit curious to know what this is and sticking around to watch and just join in on everything. One thing that we didn't expect that we noticed was the way that people, the customers, would interact with each other. We never really thought much about that until it got around to um, doing a shoot where we'd be dropping lots of sandwiches down you know, with short gaps in between. Because obviously the customers met each other, even though we were never meeting them in person. They were meeting each other in person and having sort of little ad hoc parties down in the street, talking to each other, clapping and cheering as every sandwich flew down, which um, which is kind of a nice surprise. And of course it happened, you know, and and of course that's what happens in in cities all the time and and particularly happens when you find people being playful in a city uh, because that sort of opens up communications that wouldn't normally be there you know if you're standing next to someone on the tram or walking past them in the street there's really no reason to talk to them but um if you're both standing there trying to catch a flying sandwich then inevitably you know um you'll get talking we just we just sort of did it for fun we'd done lots of other things for fun and not really expected anyone to notice and weirdly jaffle shoots was noticed by a lot of people straight away and then all over the world it was just it blew us away um and it seemed to translate really well I think just because it was just so silly, uh, it grabbed people's attention. I mean, I guess everyone loves parachutes, toasted sandwiches, so there's that too. Jaffle Shoot's rise in popularity was sudden and a little bit surreal. We'd wake up every morning to emails from PR companies and marketing people from all over the world asking us to help sell their energy drink or bagel or expensive champagne. Then Fox News ran a story where they described us as some kind of groundbreaking drone delivery service which was just about the opposite of the truth. It felt like the joke was getting out of hand, but we thought, why not? Let's fly over to America and see what happens. Thus began a new chapter in the Jaffelshoot story, our North American tour, starting in New York. For the first few weeks, Hugh and I crashed on our friend Nerissa's sharehouse couches in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And at that point, Nerissa joined the Jaffelshoot's team. I gave her a call to ask her what she remembers from the time. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I'm already recording. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, I wanted to ask you a few questions about Jaffel Shoots. Do you remember that? 
Vaguely. <laughs> <laughs> what do you remember about chapel shoots? The chaos. <laughs> um, lots of uh, intense situations, but super fun also. Like, mm. um, what's not fun about throwing grilled cheese off a roof? I'm curious as well to ask, because obviously by the time Hugh and I arrived in New York, we'd already been yes. doing it for a few months and mm-hmm. we'd kind of worked out a way to do it that was very um, familiar with a Melbourne crowd and we just kind of right. thought we could plow into New York and do the same. Um, mm-hmm. To be honest, I've never really reflected on it, how well it worked, but how do you right. think it was, because you'd been living in New York for a while, like how do you think right. it was received to a New York audience? Oh, I think it was awesome. New York um, had, like, there's no limit to the weird and wonderful shit that happens here. And that was, like, it perfectly fit in seamlessly to, like, um, you know, people have, like, the craziest ideas here and no one bats an eyelid and just people go along with it. And that was, like, um, it just fit in perfectly. I think it was very well received. It's kind of like cloudy with a chance of meatballs, and it's always been my dream to have food coming to me from this guy. I'm definitely going to do this again, so maybe like more of us will start coming back, doing it more than once. We'll start to form like a grilled cheese society. New York City embraced Jaffa shoots without hesitation, without even knowing what a Jaffa was. It was beautiful and it was bizarre. We did a lot of press in those first few weeks, and we sat through some really strange boardroom meetings. But deep down, I think we knew the gig was up. We weren't ever going to sell energy drinks or pre-sliced cheese. That's not what Jaffle Shoots was about. It was about making something happen that wasn't meant to happen. It was about turning laneways into parties. It was about getting your lunch stuck in a tree. It was about having fun. Even still, when Hugh went home to Melbourne, I decided to stay around and make some more sandwiches and see what other weird meetings I could find my way into. And while there were more Jaffa Shoots events after that American summer, it all just eventually stopped. After a while, it was just a thing that we talked about in the past tense, and we never really seriously planned to do it again. We never talked about why. We just had other life to do. So, what happened to Jaffa Shoots? Oh, well, life just sort of eventually moved on with us we we all got full-time jobs some of us have started families and we live in different cities and it's just one of those usual situations where you don't have as much free time to spend on these things as you once did but we had a really good run for many years there and we never formally cancelled these drops or put anything on indefinite pause and I would say that we're never really more than a few silly decisions away from doing another drop one day anyway. And I hope we do. But yeah, we don't have any plans. It's just there in the background for us to consider again one day. But for now, we'll just cherish the memories. Well, I'd like to think the Jaffle Shoots are still alive. It's just in a hiatus. Um, the whole world since entered, um, you know, a temporary hibernation. Um, so maybe Jaffle Shoots is just in hibernation too. It just, you know, was ahead of the curve in regards to that. Uh, I think we'll, um, Jaffle Shoots will return one day, maybe when you least expect it. Um, maybe, uh, maybe it's right around the corner. Who knows? 
I always think of Jaffel shoots as a bit of a lesson learned in my life on just maybe having a go at some things from time to time, even if they seem pointless. Just saying yes to the silly thing every now and then. You know, it can just change your life sometimes. It changed all of our lives and I'll never underestimate that. And you know, sometimes it is just fun to dig down through into that pointless rabbit hole. It may just end up being the perfect kind of pointless. Playopolis has been brought to you by 64 Ways of Being, a free augmented reality app that lets you see Melbourne through new eyes. Find out more at 64waysofbeing.com. 64 Ways is a collaboration between myself, Troy Innocent, Millipede and One Step at a Time Like This, and is supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. 64 Ways of Being and Playopolis have been produced on the lands of the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Audio production and research by Angelina Crutchfield, Adam Grant and Troy Innocent. With theme music by Hugh Parkinson and production support by Dewani Sheba Baker. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review in your podcast store of choice. It helps others to find us. Thanks for listening and see you next episode.